The faithful gather each Sunday morning, much as we have done today. They hear an inspiring message, listen to reflective music, enjoy a time of fellowship, and even pass the offering plates. Most of all, they gather strength for the coming week, perhaps for the rest of their lives. This is not, however, one of the 1,001 new worshiping communities of the Presbyterian Church. There may be songs sung and words shared and inspiration garnered, but there is no cross or font or Bible. For this Sunday morning gathering is the Houston Oasis, an atheist congregation, one of a growing number of alternative faith communities that have sprung up in recent years. In case you haven't noticed, the church, as most of us have come to know and love it, is in serious trouble. Just weeks ago, the Pew Research Center published its latest report on the state of religion in America, and the news wasn't good. While we hold on to glimpses of hope, churches that are flourishing, new ministries in places of need, centers such as this that continue to inspire and renew faith, the numbers are staggering. The percentage of adults who self-identify as Christian dropped by eight points over the past seven years, while those who claim no religious affiliation, the so-called nuns, increased significantly to almost a quarter of the population and nearly a third of the millennial generation. And if misery really does love company, we have plenty of that. We mainline Protestants are not special anymore, for we have been joined in our steady decline in membership by our evangelical and Catholic sisters and brothers. More and more, I hear the fear expressed from faithful Christians across the country that the church in America will soon mirror the experience of Europe, where many churches have been turned into party venues or museums. Those of us who have known the church as an unshakable place of safety and hope now look around us to see that everything has changed. We are, as, New, as Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it, exiles in place. We have not been ripped from our homeland and carted off to Babylon as the ancient Hebrews, 
but our feeling of having to learn how to sing the Lord's song in a foreign land is just as urgent. For we sure don't recognize this place. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? That was the cry of the psalmist who spoke on behalf of a people who feel much as we do today, let down and abandoned by the God who had brought them into being in the first place. Psalm 80 is a litany of all the things God had done for the Israelites, leading them out of the land of Egypt, making nations fall down before them, giving them abundance and prosperity. And now this. Now we are the scorn of our neighbors and the source of our enemies' laughter. In the words of my former colleague, James Luther Mays, the psalmist points to the contradiction between what God began and what God has now done, resulting in a powerful expression of anguish and bewilderment. Bewilderment. We can relate to that. We are bewildered as people of faith in this fractious time in the history of the church. Like the psalmist, we can recite a litany of all the ways in which the church has been blessed and flourished through the centuries of American history. But now, now we're left wondering what happened to the glory days of the church. We're not sure how we got here, and we're even less sure what to do about it. Ask any three Presbyterians, what's wrong with the church, and you'll get four different answers. We are, indeed, bewildered, not unlike legendary folk hero and frontiersman Daniel Boone, who blazed trails through the American wilderness not far from where we sit today. Shortly before his death in 1820, Boone was asked by his biographer if he had ever been lost on his many journeys. Boone thought a moment and responded, I can't say as ever I was lost, but I was bewildered once for three days. Bewildered. How well that describes those of us who are desperately searching in this cultural wilderness for the future of the church. Last fall, I was gathered at a table with my faculty colleagues at Union. We were interviewing a candidate for a campus position. The question and answer time turned to some honest conversation about 
the realities of trying to be the church in a world that finds Christian faith irrelevant. Finally, one of my colleagues asked, what is it that the church has to offer the world that people can't find anywhere else? My first impulse was to jump up and shout, yes, that's the question. But my second impulse was to dive under the desk lest I be asked to answer it. (laughs) That question has haunted me for months. What is it that the church has to offer the world? The answer, I think, is found in one little word that echoes through both of today's scripture texts. That word is life. Give us life, the author of Psalm 80 prayed, and we will be restored. We are always being given up to death for Jesus' sake. Paul wrote in his second letter to the Corinthians, so that the life of Jesus may be made visible in us. Life, according to the psalmist, And Paul signals the presence of God, God who always works for life despite the forces of death that threaten to undo us. That life is what the church has to offer the world. Yet, somehow, we failed to show it. Writing in response to that sobering Pew report several weeks ago, Tom Eric of the Religion News Service suggested that churches are not empty because church leaders failed or people were unappreciative. They're empty, he said, because people are finding life elsewhere. Life. That's what we have to offer the world. That's what keeps us from being otherwise lost in this bewildering age for the church. Life, the kind of life witnessed to by family members of those killed in the Charleston Church massacre last month, who one by one looked directly at the young shooter and declared that his death-dealing hatred would not extinguish the life of their loved ones or the faith they held dear. Life, the kind of life that inspired Kayla Mueller, the young relief worker from Arizona who traveled to the border of Syria to save the lives of refugees fleeing its civil war, only to lose her own life while held captive by ISIS. Life, the kind of life revealed in 
moments of forgiveness when strident voices call for retribution. In acts of generosity, in this society fueled by greed, in work for justice and peace in this increasingly divided nation and world, all done simply because that's what Jesus taught us to do. I'm sure you have stories, stories of those places and ways where life burst forth amid a landscape of death. We all have those stories. Otherwise, we wouldn't be here this morning proudly claiming our place among those who continue to believe in the church and the life we find there. In response to that question about being lost, Daniel Boone noted his three-day bewilderment Funny, the church had a similar three-day bewilderment. We call it the triduum, the period of time between Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. But we all know how that turned out. Just look at us. We're here today, still bearing witness to the risen Christ 2,000 years later, and we will continue to do so. For we do not proclaim ourselves, as Paul put it, we proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord. And though we may feel afflicted and persecuted and perplexed in this bewildering world, we are not lost. For we carry within us the renewing, transforming, resurrecting life of Jesus, who called the church into being and gave his life for it. Diana Butler Bass, one of the leading voices on the state of the church, believes that our current three-day bewilderment is but a great reversal, as she calls it, a great returning of Christianity back toward what Jesus preached, a beloved and beloving community, a way of life practiced in the world, a profound trust in God that eagerly anticipates God's reign of mercy and justice. May the God who raised Jesus Christ from death to life inspire in us and in the church we love such life for all the world to see. Thanks be to God. Amen.